As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals, number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how do you address other sectors affecting our industry? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. This episode, we have a guest you've heard before, Mr. Myron Roth. Welcome back to the show, Myron. Thanks for having me, Lourdes. Glad to be here. I'm always happy to have you on the show. Myron is the team lead, aquaculture and marine fisheries from the Extension and Support Services branch from the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. You've listened to him before, and so I'm delighted that you're back on the show. And so welcome again, and we'll get the show started. Yes? Sure. So here's my first question. What are your takes on the latest news about the Discovery Island's non-renewal of licenses? Well, it's rather unfortunate. And I guess my first response is it's not unexpected, but it's kind of expected at the same time. And I guess, you know, the way I look at it, I sort of look at the facts. And the bottom line is the first decision that was made was very political in nature. And I don't think anyone would dispute that. And then when you see this redecision that was made after the courts, you know, as they say, put it aside, they came back with the same answer that it's too risky to have farmed salmon. But if you look at the press release that DFO has, and, and if you look at it very carefully, they cite a lot of things that just don't add up. So for example, they talk a lot about the Cohen Commission and the wording I see there is uncertainty with respect to risks. And DFO spent quite a bit of effort over two years doing nine risk assessment of those disease risks. And in every single case, they found no more than minimal risk. And it's a matter of record that senior executive at DFO advised the minister at the time that they had no reason to cancel their licenses from a scientific perspective. But that advice was ignored. And so that's something that you can easily find on the internet. I'm not just talking out of school, as they say. So there was no real risk based on, you know, their own science. And of course, what we were told was that there was a social license issue, but the judges kind of disagreed with that. Now we've since done, or not we, but DFO has since done a 10th risk assessment on sea lice issue, which has proven to be a little bit controversial. And it just goes back to the old story with sea lice of a he said, she said. So that's the first thing. So the Cohen Commission said, basically, if there's no more than minimal risk, then it should be considered further. And I would say that having been involved in the CSAS process 
and how extensive and comprehensive it is, it's actually one of the things that DFO does very well, in my view. And then, of course, they talk about climate change. They talk about habitat degradation, destruction, and they talk about regulated and unregulated fishing. What they don't talk about specifically is what are the risks from farm salmon? So where does this decision come from? And you can only come to the conclusion that it's a political decision, which I can't really comment on. But then if I look at other factors, so if you look at one of the simple factors there is the global salmon supply. So if you look at the numbers from FAO, we consume about 3.6 million metric tons of salmon around the world that are either farmed or caught. What a lot of people don't realize is that 3 million of those metric tons comes from salmon farming. That's 83%. So if, in theory, you were to shut down all salmon farming, we probably wouldn't be able to eat salmon anymore, which is a real shame because salmon is a low-carbon footprint, it's highly nutritious, and it's very tasty. What really kind of bothers me from my real-world perspective is, you know, I went into Costco the other day, and I bought some skinless, boneless side of salmon, and I paid $33 a kilo for that salmon. And it was from Norway. And here I am living in a country that is the fourth largest producer of farm salmon in the world. To me, that just seems perverse. So if the government is saying on one hand that they want a blue economy and they want to deal with climate change, I don't know why we have to pay so much money to bring fly salmon in from Norway. Anyway, I'll just leave it there. I've got some other ideas and comments. But you know, the only other thing I would add to this whole fiasco, just a good word for it, is that we seem to have two standards in Canada. So we have this standard where, you know, we can have salmon farming in certain regions in BC, but none of these arguments apply to the East Coast. So I don't know why, you know, why you know why that is. Again, it's politics because basically there's just different legislation that drives this whole thing. So I don't know. It'd be nice to see some science being applied to all this, but maybe we'll get there someday. That's really unfortunate. And you're absolutely right in terms of why do we have to pay so much when we're in the pristine waters of the Pacific here? And to your point, why it's not applicable to East Coast and all the farmers specifically for this species is suffering from the legislation specifically for the West Coast, which leads me to actually my second question. What are you seeing as a pattern in the industry in the last I guess you mentioned 30 years, so three decades you've been in it. Has this been an anomaly? You use the word fiasco, which is a big word for me. So has there been <laughs> fiascos before like this? What happened? What actually ended up being done for it? I'm just seeing, is this a pattern in our industry? Well, yes. And this question has come up before. And I think if you specifically focus on salmon farming and People have to recognize that we do lots of other aquaculture in BC that uh, is done very well, and it provides very good food products. But if you look at salmon farming in the years that I've been here, it seems like every so many years, what happens is there's an issue du jour, right? So an issue du jour will come up. And so I remember once where there was some bacterial pathogens or found in some fish up island, and that led to a whole round of issues that then caused lots of hype in the media. And then we had this issue of, I guess it was the Heights report where someone came along and they found some elevated issues of contaminants in salmon, you know, carcinogen type contaminants, which PCBs are in everything. You can go and you can find PCB in breast milk, quite frankly. 
and we don't ban that. So that caused a big issue. Everyone said farm salmon was unsafe. And so that went on for a while. And then, you know, there was a big issue with escapes. People got concerned about that. And then, you know, sea lice came along and sea lice probably had the most traction of all these issues, but that was an issue. And then it kind of died down. And then the next thing was ISA. We apparently had ISA on the coast. That was a big issue. And then it kind of died down. And then, of course, you know, the latest thing we have is IHN and HMSI. And so that was another current issue. So it just seems to me that every time an issue comes up, it gets dealt with. And what happens as a result is that there are these things like, so I don't have the list in front of me, which is kind of unfortunate, but you go look at the history of salmon farming in BC. And there was probably three or four major industry reviews, or what I'm going to call, you know, moratoriums or pauses. And so when each of these issues get looked at, some commission gets struck up, or there's, you know, the Austin Commission, there was the Salmon Aquaculture Review. There was all these things that went on for about a year or two. A lot of reports were written, and then recommendations were made. And so probably pull up a list right now on my computer. Suffice it to say that I think the take-home message here is that there was all these, you know, reviews and panels and discussions. We had the most recent thing was the Cohen Commission. And every time that these things happen, what happens is the industry comes up with a new set of rules and ways of doing things. And it actually improves the industry. So there's nothing wrong with these challenges because the industry comes out of it bigger, better, and stronger. The funny thing here is, which is kind of ironic, is there's been so many of them that salmon farming now is probably the most regulated food production system in the country. And so they've gotten to the point where they monitor everything, they count everything. It's just incredible how good it is, yet it's never good enough. And so what it suggests to me is that this has nothing to do with sciences, nothing to do with best practices. This is all about value systems and people's belief. And simply, they just don't like it. So this is going to continue to go on for a long time. And so that's, you know, it's a bit of a problem. And I don't know what else can you say. It's just, it's a pattern that repeats itself. And like I said, I've spoke to this before about how many times we've had reviews. And every time we have like, you know, the salmon aquaculture review, that was huge. And that was when I first started in the industry, because I remember going to those meetings to talk to the issues. So to answer your question, that's kind of what's happened. So here we now, we have this latest thing with the Discovery Islands. There's no science, in my view, that suggests that we should take away fish from this one specific area. But we've done the risk assessments. and I can probably find lots of papers that show they can't find a demonstrable risk. And I'm sure there's someone else out there that will find science papers that say, well, maybe there's a risk, so let's take a precautionary principle. And the unfortunate thing with science is it's not as exact as people like it to be. It's never going to give you black and white answers. And so you have to sort of take all the stuff with a grain of salt and kind of move forward. There's one paper I will cite where they talked about the survival of Chinook salmon and they looked at Chinook salmon from like wild Chinook salmon from, you know, the top of the coast all the way down to California. No matter where they went, they found that survival was like, you know, less than a percent. And so the problem you have to is, is that if it's like that up and down the coast, but we only have salmon farming in what's geographically quite a small region, it doesn't make sense to me that, you know, salmon farming is causing a problem. There must be a big, more meta issue. And it's, it's basically the environment and the climate around us. And so it's convenient to say, well, let's just play the salmon farmer because it looks like we're doing something. But it's kind of like we're doing something, but it's not going to have any effect. So even if you say there is some tiny little impact from salmon farming and you can sort of ameliorate it, 
you'll do all that, but it's not going to really have a demonstrable effect because there's a much bigger thing going on that people don't want to address. And, you know, climate change is definitely one of them, and urbanization is another bigger one. And then there's this another issue that, of course, that we're starting to see is that we don't really understand what's happened to salmon when they go into the Pacific, which is a bit of a black box for trying to estimate things like survival and, you know, is there anything we can even do about it? Yeah, and... It does. It does. It's fascinating because I know in our business, when we do what's called an impact filter, okay, what is the issue? What has been done wrong? How can we improve? How can we get it better? And so you mentioning that it's the most regulated area now in aquaculture because it's just getting better and better, but yet it's still not good enough. So what do you think is the standard for them to be good enough? Oh, well, I mean, if you want zero risk, you're not going to get it. And the only way I can really explain this is if someone has a fear of flying, there's no solution that you can provide that would guarantee you that a plane's not going to fall out of the sky. And no amount of science or no amount of preparation or risk mitigation is going to convince that person to get on the plane. But what's really odd is, is that person will probably get into a car without thinking about it. And we know cars actually can be really quite dangerous, but we accept that risk. So I don't think it's a matter of saying, is this good enough for you? It'll never be good enough for them. The bar is always going to move forward. I think what we need to do is just have a discussion about why we do it and is it the right thing to do? When it doesn't become the right thing to do, then I think it's not good enough. That answers your question. And I think right now it is the right thing to do. You know, I give you that example of global salmon supply, you know, commercial fishing can pull about 100,000 metric tons of fish protein out of the ocean. And we've known that since about the early 80s, that's about as high as it's going to go. That's kind of kept out of that. Yet since the 80s to today, we still pull about that amount of fish out of the ocean, maybe a little bit less. But the effort to get that fish has increased substantially, as has the technology. So what we're kind of doing is we're kind of scraping the barrel. And there will come a point where the whole thing does collapse. And then that's going to be a big problem. And It's a problem because, you know, if you look at climate change, which is a much bigger issue here, I mean, salmon are hugely important. Like, I can't say how important they are. But, you know, if climate change thunders in, pardon the pun, (laughs) it's going to be a bigger issue. And, you know, the United Nations have said what governments need to do is shift their societies to a more seafood-based diet. And if they did that, that would be a climate action unto themselves because, It's a great source of protein. It's a healthy source of protein. It's a very low carbon footprint source of protein. And we're not going to get it from fishing. I mean, fishing is great and it provides good diversity in seafood. And I think it's done very sustainably. But the bottom line is that we're going to have to supplement it from aquaculture. And I know people will say, well, we can do aquaculture. We just have to do it differently. But that's kind of a different discussion altogether. Yeah. And it's really fascinating because all this controversial news that came last Friday and then everybody is like why there was no consultation and as you mentioned the science has already been done and yet it doesn't seem to have been considered so what are some of your recommendations to other aquaculturists who feel uncertain at the moment because of this latest news that's a very difficult question and it boils down to being a business question I think that there's a window that's still a little bit open through the transition plan So it's a complicated question because what you're talking about really is what are salmon farmers going to do? I mean, we do have shellfish growers. We do have some land-based growers. We do have people that want to get involved in the marine plant. 
like seaweed aquaculture. And I wouldn't sort of advocate that they have to do something else because this isn't going to work. I think what they need to do is to continue doing what they are doing. And I think salmon farmers are doing the right thing. They're very proactive. They're constantly trying out new technology. They're constantly trying to reduce their impacts. They have a very great track record for establishing, you know, they're one of the few industries that can tell you what their carbon footprint or their carbon baseline is. And so if they say they're going to try and keep reducing their baseline, they can actually do that because they know what the baseline is. That's how you reduce your carbon footprint. And so I think they need to continue doing the right thing. And if they do the right thing, it'll be good. So I don't know what else you could say. I know that the transition plan will look at how we use and adopt alternate technologies to reduce impacts on wild salmon. What remains to be seen is, is how that's going to be administrated and how it's going to be evaluated. And so we had a really good discussion at the Vancouver Island Economic Alliance Summit where we talked about this. And I think that as more and more players and First Nations in particular get involved, I think we can come up with cooperative and collaborative systems that will allow the, the industry to move forward because it's not perfect. I'm not saying it's not perfect. And I'm not saying that all the science has been done. Far from it. We always have to do more science because we're always learning. And I think we always can improve. And so as long as we continue to move forward, that's probably the best thing that we can do. And there's actually one other thing I wanted to say that I think is really important is that, you know, this business about coastal communities and coastal jobs. So, you know, when I was talking earlier on about this press release that came out, you know, sort of supporting this decision, you know, we also get, you know, documents that have come out and said, well, we got to support coastal communities. We got to support reconciliation and that means jobs, right? So we need coastal economies. And so I was just doing some numbers this morning. And jobs are always confusing, but we know that the seafood sector in BC, for example, you look at the whole seafood sector, you know, it accounts for about 1,500 direct, indirect, and induced jobs. And that's just people working in aquaculture. Maybe look at the wild fishery, it's a little bit higher. It's about 2,400. But the important thing here is, is the processing sector. This is getting missed in all this. And so the processing sector probably produces about 5,600 jobs. So... When you look at some of the stuff, like the salmon farmers, for example, they've said that they've lost 1,500 jobs from a 25% or so reduction just from the Discovery Islands. But when you look at the processing sector, a lot of these processing plants process both wild fish and farmed fish. And I would say about 50% of the wholesale value of BT seafood industry comes from farmed fish. What it means is that, you know, salmon farming is kind of what I would call the anchor tenant. So if you take away salmon farming, you're going to have this huge impact on the sector, and in particular, the processing sector. So it's not just the salmon farmers that will get impacted. It's now the processing sector, and it's all the jobs that are related to both salmon farming and processing. And so if that infrastructure starts to fall apart because they don't have what I'm calling the anchor tenant, then it could cause a big knock-on effect on the whole sector. And I think that's something that we have to consider in that you can't just look at salmon farming in isolation. It's part of a bigger, bigger thing that is sort of the coastal economy. Very, very good point. Well, thank you very much again for being back on the show, Myra. And my biggest takeaway from our conversation today is when you were talking about this will just bring more cooperation and collaboration because, as you know, when faced with the precipice of change, we tend to really be one voice. So I hope that this news actually will bring that forth. How can they get in touch with you? <laughs> so the best phone number to reach me at is 
6983404. That's my office line. And of course, it's Myron, M-Y-R-O-N dot Roth, R-O-T-H at government dot D-C dot C-A. You're active on LinkedIn too, so they can... Um... I'm active on LinkedIn. That's right. I'm happy to chat further. I do think, you know, the industry will move forward. You know, there's uh, another interesting story where, you know, like a, lo- a lot of artists will say, I, you know, I need creative tension to create really good art. And I don't know, I- I'm not really a tennis fan, but I remember there was a time when Steffi Graf was one of the best female tennis players in the world, right? And the reason that she was the best was because Monica Seles was the only person who at the time could challenge her and really elevated her game because the minute she stopped thinking or took her eye off the ball, she would lose a point. And then a tragic thing happened. Monica Seles was actually attacked and stabbed in the shoulder by some weird fan of Graf, and it took her out of the professional circuit. And you know what happened to Graf's game when she lost her challenger? No. It went down. Her game went down, and she actually lost her edge because she was playing people that were not nearly as good as Seles, and her game went down. And so you need that challenger if you want to be the best. And I do think BC Salmon Farming could be the best. And as much as it's a bit frustrating to see some of these decisions that are coming out of Ottawa, it'll just make the industry better. I really think that. And it's tough and it's probably easy for me to say because I'm not the guy getting handed a pink slip, but hopefully the industry will come out of it better and it'll move forward. I can't guarantee that, but that's my hope. Thank you very much. A really good way to end the show on a positive note. To our listeners, I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture. Thanks again, Myron. I really appreciate okay. your time. Thanks. You have a good day. Thanks. Bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening and I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website, www.sustainableaquaculture.ca slash podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture.